This is Christian Knutson and John K. Wilson with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in smoky downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin students who graduate high school in the top 5% of their class would be guaranteed a spot at UW-Madison under a proposal introduced this week at the state legislature. The Republican-backed measure would also give those students admission to any other UW system school, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Backers say they wrote the bill after hearing stories from constituents about high-achieving students who were rejected from UW-Madison and chose to go to colleges out of state. UW didn't provide data about how many top-ranking Wisconsin students have been rejected in recent years, but in a statement responding to the proposal, the university said it's committed to, quote, ensuring that Wisconsin's top high school students stay in the state for college. Last year, the flagship campus accepted about 60% of freshman applicants from Wisconsin and 49% overall. It's unclear whether Governor Tony Evers would support the measure. The state legislature's budget committee is giving financial backing for a plan to merge two struggling college campuses in West Bend. UW-Milwaukee's Washington County Two-Year College and Moraine Park Technical College are seeking to combine operations in order to stay open in the face of declining enrollment. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, lawmakers earmarked more than $3 million in the upcoming state budget to support the merger. Washington County officials support the plan, but the UW system would have to sign off on dissolving the current UW-Milwaukee-Washington County campus. The situation in Washington County mirrors the struggles of smaller two-year branch campuses and tech schools across the state, especially in rural areas, as they look to keep their doors open for students despite enrollment and funding declines. The Dane County Bomb Squad was called to downtown Madison this morning after a suspicious package was reported at a state government building. Capitol Police officers initially responded to a call at the Department of Natural Resources office on the 100 block of Webster Street around 7 a.m., NBC 15 reports. Officials initially evacuated the first floor of the building and blocked off surrounding sidewalks. They issued an all-clear shortly after 9 a.m. Wisconsin remains under a multi-day statewide air quality advisory as smoke from wildfires in Canada continue to blanket the region. The alert from the State Department of Natural Resources runs through Thursday at noon. The agency forecasts conditions in the next 48 hours to range from unhealthy to very unhealthy, but could also reach hazardous, which is the highest level of the air quality index. Officials are recommending that everyone avoid prolonged or heavy exertion outdoors, while those with heart or lung conditions, older adults, and children should avoid all physical activity outdoors. City of Madison planning officials have sided with historic preservation advocates, nixing a plan for a new development on State Street. The city's plan commission voted unanimously this week to deny a developer's proposal to raise three buildings on the 400 block of State and replace them with a new commercial construction. The Capital Times reports. Historic preservation groups lobbied against the plan, saying it would erode the historic character of the downtown street. The city's landmark commission determined last year that two of the buildings, which date from the late 1800s, are historically significant. And on that basis, the plan commission voted to let them stand. The plan already forced the relocation of three local businesses, B-Side Records, Sencha Tea Bar, and Freedom Skate Shop, when the developer declined to renew their leases last year. Madison has a new youth poet laureate. 
Maliha Newman, a sophomore at West High School, was named for the role this month after being selected by the Madison Arts Commission and City Poet Laureate Angela Trudell Vasquez. The position is part of a nationwide program recognizing and supporting gifted young poets. Newman self-published an inaugural collection of poetry at age 14 and is active in several clubs at school and in the community. And although they might sound harmless, the spongy moth caterpillar poses a big threat to the environment. City of Madison officials are warning of an outbreak of the invasive insects locally. They are asking the public to squish with their shoe any spongy moth caterpillars or their eggs that you see. These caterpillars can defoliate trees, which would add even more stress on what has already been a dry and stressful summer for foliage. Spongy moth caterpillars can also cause skin or respiratory irritation to humans if touched, so take special care if clothing or skin comes in contact with them. You can find more information on how to deal with the insects and what they look like on the state DNR website. And now, on to today's top stories. Last fall, the Dane County Board created a new Department of Criminal Justice Reform to find ways to address racial disparities at the Dane County Jail. But this department hasn't gotten off the ground and no one has been named to lead it. Things will take a little longer to get up and running still after a committee rejected a proposal to have former Dane County Sheriff Dave Mahoney lead the department. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. A Dane County committee opted to shelve a resolution that would have appointed former Dane County Sheriff Dave Mahoney as the head of the county's new Department of Justice Reform. The vote by the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, or PPNJ, last Thursday effectively blocked Mahoney's appointment from coming before the county board until at least the end of the summer. Under the proposal, Mahoney would have served until February 24, 2024, with a salary of $130,000. If approved, Mahoney would have been charged with kickstarting the department and hiring a permanent head to lead the department through a nationwide search. The Department of Criminal Justice Reform was created in last year's budget to address significant racial disparities in the Dane County Jail and larger carceral justice system. According to a 2021 report from the JFA Institute, an organization that analyzes jails across the country for criminal justice policymaking, black people in Dane County are arrested at a rate 11 times higher than that of white people. That's within a state that incarcerates black residents at a higher rate than any other state, according to a 2020 report by the Sentencing Project. County Executive Joe Parisi announced Mahoney as his pick to head the new department earlier this month, calling him a well-respected community leader who brings people together. Mahoney was first elected as Dane County Sheriff in 2006 and continued to serve as the county sheriff until he retired in 2021. He led the sheriff's office during the Act 10 protests more than a decade ago, which drew well over 100,000 people. Notoriously, Mahoney clashed with state patrol officers, saying he refused to let his deputies be palace guards to the Capitol. Mahoney also led the sheriff's office during the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. His office saw backlash after sending out a press release and respond to a local fund that had bailed three people awaiting trial out of jail. The press release contained mugshots of the accused and used language that assumed the defendants had already been convicted. 
At last Thursday's meeting, community member Dan Fitch, a co-creator of a podcast about the Dane County Jail, brought forward the experience of Jimmy Joshua. In 2020, deputies at the Dane County Jail threw Joshua, who at the time was incarcerated, and broke his hip. He was then left alone in an isolation cell for 15 hours and later required major surgery to repair the damage. Joshua later sued the deputies involved, and the Capital Times reported last month that a hearing has not yet been scheduled in that lawsuit. Fitch says that this incident should immediately prevent Mahoney from heading the Department of Criminal Justice Reform. He's not a reformer. He's a failed sheriff. And to be honest, I think he's a pretty bad person to put in charge of people in any context, uh, especially one that will require improving accountability practices. And I'll happily eat these words if Mr. Mahoney reaches out and tries to help Jimmy Joshua. County board supervisors questioned what would change if Mahoney was named the head of the department. The motion to indefinitely postpone the appointment was brought forward by District 16 Supervisor Rick Rose. It's not a vote against Sheriff Mahoney. It is a statement to say that while law enforcement should be at the table, which it already is at CJC, it should not have a department whose creation and mission is to reform justice, even if it's temporary, yet alone spearhead any reform efforts, especially at the department's genesis. Another supervisor, Dana Pelabon of District 33, says that nobody involved in any police or sheriff's office should lead a project that has the explicit goal of reform. As the kids say, no shade on you. It is, for me, purely a principle of the system that created the harm should not lead the reform of. Otherwise, that reform would be unnecessary because they would have already done it. But District 3 Supervisor Annalise Eicher argues that, though she is upset that they were not considering a permanent leader, even appointing a former sheriff would at least get the department off the ground. It has taken a long way to get to this point. Dave is certainly law enforcement, but he's also been a part of how we got to this point. And leaving this without leadership during this budget process, I worry is going to put any number of our projects at risk, um, including the community court that we worked so hard for. Um, that is a $600,000 grant that I personally worked on. And, uh, you know, thinking about you know, big step reentry, I mean, just everything that this board has been pushing for. I don't want that to be at risk. Ultimately, the committee voted four to three to shelve the appointment. It will remain shelved for 45 days from the vote, but could return before the Dane County Board as early as August. Mahoney tells WORT that while he was looking forward to leading the department, he isn't upset about their decision. Well, I'm, I'm at peace with their decision. That's the process that we, we should live by in the democratic process, and uh, I'm fine with it. Parisi tells WORT today that he still sees Mahoney as the right candidate for this temporary position and that his progressive values and vision are self-evident. It's not the first time in recent memory a proposed appointee from the county executive has been shot down by the Dane County Board. Last month, the Dane County Board voted to deny the appointment of State Representative Sheila Stubbs to head the county's Department of Human Services. That came after several tense committee meetings where Stubbs's supporters called supervisors racist for not appointing her to lead the department, including some supporters using racial slurs to describe several black supervisors. 
Ultimately, Executive Parisi appointed community leader Gloria Reyes, a former police officer and former head of the Madison School Board, to temporarily co-lead the department. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Just like many other states, Wisconsin still struggles in opening up access to high-speed internet in underserved areas. The federal government hopes to help close gaps by following up with funds for each state tied to the bipartisan infrastructure law. Wisconsin is getting a significant amount of money advocates hope will connect more homes and businesses in rural areas. Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. As rural communities still suffer from the so-called digital divide, the Biden administration has announced the rollout of more than $42 billion for the expansion of high-speed internet access. That includes $1 billion for Wisconsin. The funding comes from the multi-year federal infrastructure law that was adopted in late 2021. Federal officials say more than 8 million households and small businesses in the U.S. are in areas where there's no high-speed internet infrastructure. In Wisconsin's Jefferson County, Deb Reinbold leads Thrive Economic Development and says it's welcome news for smaller towns. It's a huge opportunity for the state. In today's interconnected world, broadband's not just a luxury, it's a lifeline, and especially for rural communities. Reinbold says her area has seen progress thanks to separate grants in recent months, but she adds there are still some areas that need service, and there's hope the new funding will close remaining gaps. According to a statewide task force report, nearly 7% of Wisconsinites lack access to the SEC standard for download speed, and most of those residents are in rural areas. Ryan Bold, also a board member with the Wisconsin Rural Partners Group, says beyond helping rural residents and small businesses, the extra funding allows health providers in these communities to easily connect with patients. Telehealth is also something that, you know, we're seeing such a significant investment in from our area medical clinics and hospitals. Honestly, the impact is very widespread. Wisconsin's Public Service Commission will be in charge of distributing the grants. In a statement, it says it will ensure the funding goes to where it's needed as quickly as it can while maintaining transparency and being stewards of taxpayer dollars. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Last week, the Madison Common Council blocked developer CoreSpace's proposed downtown 12-story luxury housing project. Alders cited concerns about lack of affordability as the apartments would have been sold or rented at market price. District 8 Alder MGR Govindarjund reached out to UW-Madison students via email yesterday to hear their thoughts directly on the state of housing in the city. He spoke with WORT reporter Hee-Wan Lim earlier today about what he's hearing from students. The city council voted down a luxury housing development in an unusual move last Tuesday in favor of maintaining existing affordable housing, but there may be another vote to reconsider the project in the near future. I'm joined now by Alder MGR Govindarajand of District 8, one of the strongest supporters of affordable housing. Yesterday, he emailed current and former UW-Madison students, encouraging them to get involved in this issue. Alder Govindarajand, thank you for talking with me. Of course, thank you. You and recent student elder on the council, Juliana Bennett, opposed approving the development last week. Remind us of the details of that development project. Yes, it was the Johnson and Bassett project. It would take place across the street from uh, Bassett Street Brunch. It was bringing about 730 total beds to, uh, to the apartment, and it's supposed to be a market rate housing project. That is 
also supposed to be mainly geared towards student housing. Yeah, and why did you and Alder Bennett oppose the project? Yes, so my vote specifically, and I can't speak for other alders, was because I heard back from a lot of people living around the, the development and in the development, there's a few houses being torn down to build it. And some residents of where it's being built essentially said that I live in more affordable housing than what is being built. And if my house is being demolished, there's a good chance that I might be able to find another place to live with more roommates and less personal space. But there's also a small chance that I go homeless. And for other residents, that chance of going homeless was, was much higher. And in my eyes, that created an equity issue where it's you are building much more luxurious housing and kicking out and displacing a lot of less wealthy students. And that's problematic in my eyes. I don't want, I don't want students to be displaced and go homeless. So that's why I voted against the vote. Yeah, it feels like we hear the phrase affordable housing quite often when we're talking about a development for luxury apartments. And what does the city mean when it talks about affordable housing? So I'm going to be honest, I've been in this role for two months, and the term affordable housing is different for everyone you speak to. For me, what it means is that you are able to pay an amount worth what you are making and still have money left over for your other needs in your, your life. For students, that's the other needs are grocery shopping, textbooks and class materials, education, and a little bit for just going out and having a social life. So that's what I would say is affordable, something that does not burden you for everything else that you have expenses for. If you want me to put a number towards it, most students that I've heard from during the campaign season door knocking called affordable around 500 to $600 per month. Yeah, and going back to the luxury housing development, the proposed development would have demolished naturally occurring affordable housing. What is naturally occurring affordable housing? I believe the term for it is pretty much just housing that's been there for long enough where it is not, it does not have the best amenities and therefore comparatively speaking to other areas, it's, or it's more affordable, I would say. And what kind of criticism have you faced in the last week as a result of the council not approving the development? Yes, a lot of people, um, a decent amount of people have reached out to me personally and just asked, why did you vote against this? This is decreasing the amount of housing in Madison. We are in a housing crisis and we need more housing. And all of that I agree with. We do need more housing. I just believe we need to focus on the type of housing as well. I have heard quite literally about this one specific project myself from hundreds of students during the summertime when most of them are not even in town about how this is not the type of housing we need, that they need more middle-income housing. Um, and this is, keep in mind, this is about renting and not buying a house because the campus area has a lot of naturally affordable, very affordable housing that is often not great with amenities and you have to get a lot of roommates for. Or it has a lot of luxury housing, which is, tend to be the high-rises, but it does not have a lot of middle-area housing, which is the type of housing that this neighborhood downtown really depends on and really needs, but it's lacking. And that brings us back to yesterday. Your email to students encourages communication with alders about the effects of this most recent vote on us. Does hearing student voices actually inform how alders vote? I would hope so. So I, this is the first time that I've been on council that I think it might make a difference. Or it's the first time I've been on council that we've heard from a lot of students. Since I sent that email, we have gotten 
couple dozen emails since I last checked, and we've gotten a lot more responses on a Google form that students filled out. I believe the last time I checked specifically, it might be about 100 constituent emails from students. And the vast majority of them are saying we need middle-income housing. We don't need luxury housing, like explaining the type of, of housing that students actually need. And that's not something that students have communicated to elders before, because the city council does not typically reach out to students. That's just how this has been. For example, most housing projects have been approved in the summertime or when students are just generally not available. So yes, it, I hope it does make the difference. Yeah, and how would the public get in touch with you or the alders of their districts? Going to the cityofmadison.com website and then clicking contact your alder, you can get in touch with any of your specific alders. And then for me, you can email me at district8 at cityofmadison.com. You can also text me at 608-509-9119, though I do prefer email. And what else would you like to share with our listeners in the little time we have left? Yes, it's just students are finally speaking up, and a lot of us feel like the city has forgotten us sometimes, and this is the first time where we are speaking up and we really want you all to hear us. I support more housing. I want more housing in Madison, but we also really need to focus on the type of housing that each community needs. Yeah, that's all. I've been talking with Alder Govindarajan about affordable housing. Alder Govindarajan, thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. The time is just now about 6.33, and you're listening to Local News on WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Last week, Governor Tony Evers signed a compromise bill that dedicates one-fifth of the state sales tax to revenues to local governments around Wisconsin. While that money is the first change to the state's shared revenue system in years, it also comes with caveats on how that money can actually be spent. Yesterday, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Jerry DeShane, executive director of the League of Wisconsin Municipalities, to discuss the impacts that bill will have on local governments. Last October, you were expressing a little bit of doubt as to whether or not the state would come through uh, for municipalities. What is your feeling on this bill? Did they did the state do what municipalities need? You know, it's it's funny because on the one hand, what the state did is a once in a generation improvement. So it's fantastic. It's a huge step forward. Roughly two hundred seventy million dollars in state money is going to local governments that hadn't gone there before. At the same time, you have to recognize, as you laid out, there are strings attached. And frankly, it's not a perfect solution for any local government. But by and large, it's a pretty good deal. It seems like the uh, in recent years, the legislature has uh, been focused a lot on removing a lot of local control from local government. Is this part of that effort to, to sort of limit what governments can do on their own without uh, state oversight? Well, I have to admit, I'm a little bit, I take a longer view when it comes to that whole local control question. The state has been giving and taking local authority for over 100 years. In fact, literally from statehood, when they passed the Home Rule Amendment back in the 1920s, I think it was, the court promptly turned around and said, yeah, that doesn't mean what you think it means. 
the legislature can do basically whatever it wants to. So it ebbs and flows. So let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of, of the money and what it can be used for. As, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a narrow range of things that this revenue can uh, pay for. How does that actually going to affect local government's budgets? Can they reallocate some of this money to you know those things like law enforcement or fire protection or EMS, and then thereby allowing more of their, their regular tax revenue to be used for other things? Or is this really only going to cover those specific types of services? Oh, there absolutely will be reallocations. In fact, there's nothing, there's nothing in this bill that says local governments can't do that. Lawmakers have their priorities, and their priorities are law enforcement, first responders, public works, things like that. Local governments have priorities as well. Those are generally the same priorities, but where they're not, yes, local governments can allocate other funds and make it work. So basically, it, it, it will go from one pocket into another, but the fact that there's more money in the system uh, makes it easier for local governments to fund what they want. That... I, I, I was about to say, I wish I had said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that. That's a good way of describing it. What do you hear from folks in Milwaukee about the uh, ability to enact local sales taxes? Those, those are some, seems to be some very pointed restrictions on what they can do. Are they going to have the same kind of flexibility to shut Mu- uh, money around if they do enact some of these local sales taxes, or are those restrictions more restrictive than what we're seeing for other governments? Some of the maintenance of effort restrictions that are placed on Milwaukee, and and frankly, the outright prohibitions uh, when it comes to the streetcar and funding a DEI office, are more restrictive than what other cities and villages in Wisconsin are facing. And to that extent, that's that's chafing in Milwaukee quite a bit, and understandably so. In context, it does need to be pointed out that Milwaukee will receive, between the sales tax, if they choose to enact it, and increased shared revenue, the city of Milwaukee alone will see an additional $220 million a year in revenue. That's more money than all of the other cities and villages and towns in Wisconsin will receive. Is it proportional to the population or is it one of the things that seemed to come out of this bill is that there seemed to be some favoring for uh, rural communities. Is that something the league supports? Yes. Well, the the league supported the overall bill, including recognizing that it has some warts. The reason why Milwaukee is seeing a substantially larger increase, first of all, they need it. Second of all, the old shared revenue formula, which continues to exist under this bill, favored Wisconsin's older, larger cities. Uh, those cities that grew rapidly a little bit later in their history, and I'm thinking of Madison, Janesville, Eau Claire, didn't do quite as well under the old formula as Milwaukee, Racine, or Beloit. The new money is weighted toward those that did not do quite as well, and that definitely included the small municipalities out there, the the little cities, villages, and towns that make up over half of Wisconsin. So it, it's a mixed bag. They didn't fix the old formula. They didn't take anything away from anybody. But at the same time, they did try to use some of the resources to bring some of those that were definitely on the very very small end of sharing to bring them up somewhat. And tell, talk about how uh, the shared revenue interacts with things like property tax limits. I mean, we, the state has this formula of allowing property tax levies to increase based on 
population and new construction. It's a very complicated, counterintuitive sort of formula. But will this ameliorate some of those pressures, or are we still going to see pressures for property tax referendums coming up in, in the next ballots? I think you're still going to see pressure for property tax relief ballots, perhaps not quite as much, or, or maybe there will be a couple of years where there are not quite as many as we saw last year, for example, when there were 38 of them. This money, while it's generational and it's huge and local governments are very grateful for it, it doesn't fully make up for those levy limits that exist out there, that that limit that says your property tax levy can only grow in proportion to the new construction that occurs in your community. That formula doesn't, well, it, it just be blunt, it doesn't work. It just does not allow a community to keep pace with the economy. The good news with this new boost of shared revenue is it also comes with a commitment from the state to keep bringing shared revenue up with the sales tax. Shared revenue hadn't moved in 20 years. It had been stagnant for 20 years. In fact, in real dollar terms, it went down. What the legislature and the governor said with this one is we're going to watch the sales tax and shared revenue will increase with the sales tax. Now, that's simply not enough in dollar terms to undo what levy limits do, but one problem at a time. And so this will be pegged to sales tax revenue over time and will increase as sales tax revenue grows. Will that necessarily correlate with inflation? Uh, Loosely. I, I think what's important here is that you're now looking at property taxes and potentially property tax growth as one part of the local revenue picture and retail sales taxes and retail sales growth as another. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have any kind of a retirement fund, you know that what your financial advisor tells you to do is diversify. You need more than one revenue source. And that's really the big gain in all of this is that instead of just waiting for property taxes to grow by new houses being built, we can now also count on the growth in local commercial sales. That was 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing talking with Jerry DeShane, executive director of the League of Wisconsin Municipalities. And it was just a portion of their full conversation. You can find the whole thing online at wortfm.org. Trail Tuesday is back, and this week's visit is to a notably buggy trail in the Cherokee Marsh. But as WORT contributor Reed Kamai experienced, that's more than made up for with great views of prairies and the Ahara River. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week we stay along the Ahara River and enjoy a vivid glimpse of it while also navigating through shady paths, mounds, and prairies. In the northern part of Madison, This is Cherokee Marsh Conservation Park. This park has three sections to it, titled North, South, and Mendota. For this tour, I took to the north portion, which itself takes up nearly a thousand acres. Its main entrance is at the north end of North Sherman Avenue, whose slight lollipop at the end provides convenient parking. The road stretches as far south as the Isthmus, and runs next to the Duck Pond, the home stadium of the Madison Mallards. The last half mile before Cherokee Marsh is unpaved. My adventure through this park began before I even got out of the car, as the parking lot was very buggy and bugs of all kinds flew around my car. 
A large fly even camped itself out on the underside of the driver's side mirror for a good minute before flying off. Mary Binkley, board member of the organization Friends of Cherokee Marsh, says that the prevalence of insects is expected where there is vegetation and is to the overall benefit of the habitat. It gives them food, it gives them shelter. And in an urban environment, that is not available. So the bugs are actually a good thing, even if they're not pleasant to us, because they provide food for everything bigger than they are. Lots of birds, lots of small animals, um, all the insects eat each other, you know, the big ones eat the little ones and on down the line. So it's a sign of a, a good environment, good shelter, good food, good place to grow up. That's why there's so many bugs. Unfortunately, that positive perspective was not on my mind in the car surrounded by bugs. When I eventually stepped out of the car, I knew I needed to make it quick. Ready? One, two, three. There is a picnic table and a shelter with bathrooms at the entrance of the park. The trails can then be accessed just past a gate near there that can be stepped over, under, or around. There are many different paths through this hotbed of nature. In fact, just past the gate is a four-way intersection. We'll touch on every direction throughout this segment, but we start by going straight on the river path. This splits off once again just a few hundred feet later. We'll keep to the left to stay on the river path. We're greeted with a cacophony of bird calls. Take a listen and see how many birds you can identify. Just so many birds, so many different kinds of birds in this kind of area. It's just really wonderful to hear. Also makes me wonder what they're talking about to each other. Off to the right, you can even see some downed trees on which moss has grown. Along the river trail, you will see a boulder commemorating one of two conical mounds. These were the sites of hunting groups that would gather, along with burial grounds by members of the Ho-Chunk Nation. The City of Madison's Parks Division states that the hunting groups dated back to the 19th century, though the boulder plaque references the years 0 to 400 AD. Keep going, and just before the river, you'll eventually reach a steel walkway. And this is where you'll be able to see the Yahara River. You get a brilliant 180-degree view and can see far away down the river in both directions. We are just over a mile and a half from the airport, which likely explains the airplane noises in the background. In any case, I turned around and headed back in the direction I came. My next order of business was to explore the Aspen Loop I mentioned earlier. It's a short and sweet alternate route back towards our starting point and contains an outlet to another loop on the trail, the Woodpecker Loop. That is nearly a mile long in itself. I took greater interest, though, in the Overlook Loop further north and so stayed on the Aspen Trail to get there. Now is a good time to note that there are signs with a map of the trails situated throughout the conservation park. This was very helpful for me in navigating. The bugs sadly did not go away. A fly hung onto a sleeve of my shirt while I was gathering ambient audio. Soon thereafter, we find ourselves back at the park entrance, but there's much more to come. Back at the four-way intersection, we take the right turn to walk along the Bluebird Loop. The loop, much like the rest of the park, sure lives up to its name. We quickly reach another four-way intersection. Turning left takes you back towards where we were previously. Turning right keeps you on the Bluebird Loop. We'll stay straight to take to the Overlook Trail. Get ready for some hills soon. I was soon able to find out what they mean by Overlook. Uh, 
but yeah, so we're coming around here, and then there's this left turn, which I think takes you, oh, look at that. Okay, so there's like a deck somewhere. So we're gonna be able to go up onto the deck and get a nice look of the, of the river. So let's turn left here and do that. There is also a steel landing at ground level to be able to look out to the river. I took it in from both spots. Back onto the trail, we keep going and come across another fork. Continuing straight takes you a short while longer to the pier, which serves as a dock for taking canoes and kayaks out onto the river. I instead turned right. Here now is the climb I referenced earlier. It's a somewhat steep hill that takes you about 65 feet higher in elevation. Watch your step, especially in the early stages because there are tree stumps and wood blocks that you'll have to step over. The apex of this climb is the top of the mound, another burial area. Shortly after the apex is another overlook spot, not out to the river, but rather to one of the several prairies in this park. The views are breathtaking. There are two paths you can take. You can go straight to walk around the prairie and check out a small pond, or you can turn right to take a shortcut to the other side. I wanted to see the pond, and so I headed straight. This path is a grassy one with fields of reeds to either side of you. It runs downhill, especially at first, and bends to the right after a short while. You can see off into the distance towards the east as well as the bend occurs in what is a stunning view. Near the pond, there is a sign alerting visitors to a bird that is nesting in the vicinity. The pond itself, known as Frog Pond, is very small, and while there was plenty to take in, there were no frogs to be seen or even heard. Continuing along the overlook path, you eventually end up back at the Bluebird Loop. If you're up for more of a walk, continue straight to pass Lou's Pond on your left. This will take you to the Woodpecker Path I mentioned earlier. If not, you can turn right here or at the next opportunity to head back to the parking lot, concluding a journey loaded with views of prairies and bodies of water alike. Next Tuesday is the 4th of July, so there will be no Trail Tuesday that day. Join us the following Tuesday then for the next edition. For now, reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Cameron. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg talks about a collaborative community effort in Sauk County to save a family of kestrels. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to share a really fun story about some American kestrel babies that were reunited with their parents. And this is a really special story because it took, I think, about four or five organizational contacts and collaboration to get this actually working, and it was successful, so that's really awesome. So what happened is that we had a site out in Sauk County, and there was an unintentional 
demolition that caused the destruction of an American kestrel nest. It was an old house that was set to be demolished, uh, but the excavators didn't actually know that there was a baby kestrel inside. And actually, it was three of them that they were finding in the rubble after they had taken down an old wall. So American kestrels are cavity nesting birds. Uh, It's not that often that we hear about them nesting in old houses, but well, for one that might not have been used for a long time, it definitely makes sense. Kestrels are little falcons and they are the cutest and ugliest babies, but really beautiful birds in general. The males have this really gorgeous blue head and blue wings with a rusty orange back. And the females don't have that blue wing and not as strong of a blue cap. It's more of that orangey rust color. And then kestrel chicks when they're first born are all white. So it's really cool to see them, you know, molt through those different plumage patterns and become these just gorgeous little raptors. And we have a decline in our state of Wisconsin, about 40% in the last half century, according to the uh, Central Wisconsin Kestrel research project which was started a long time ago by if you've never heard this name francis hammerstrom who is well known in our state in wisconsin for helping to establish the buena vista grasslands she and her husband are actually famous for helping to uh, keep and save an area on these grasslands for the greater prairie chicken but also put up nesting boxes for american kestrels so if you haven't heard of the central wisconsin kestrel research project they're really amazing check out their website at wisconsinkestrels.org, but they're the ones that really helped in this situation with these baby kestrels. So what happened is that the house came down, the kestrels were found inside, and the babies were transported to Sauk County Humane Society since that was the closest location that was willing to accept them because they help with transports of wildlife to Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. So the cool thing is that Sauk County, although they don't have a wildlife rehab program, are kind enough to find volunteers to help transport wildlife from the Sauk County areas to our rehabilitation facility being the primary one in southwestern Wisconsin for bird rehabilitation. And so we have a really great partnership with their their facility. So the animal service officers from Sauk County called us, uh, said, hey, we've got these baby kestrels. And the first thing that we wanted to do was figure out, okay, what could we do to get these birds back to the care of their parents? Because no matter what, that's always going to be the best thing for those babies, especially a species that is in decline in the state. We think of them as being very special raptors and they're federally protected. So we contacted Madison Audubon, who connected us with the folks at the Central Wisconsin Kestrel Research. And they actually had already, this is miraculous, scheduled plans to band baby kestrels in Sauk County in a different area the next day. So what we did is we, you know, visually inspected, kind of worked together to talk through whether or not the kestrels were healthy. They seem seemedly fine. And we had them held overnight at Sauk County Humane Society. And then we talked through the process of erecting a brand new nest box with a post and a brand new box that was, you know, obviously provided by the Madison Audubon folks. And they went out there and were able to pick up the babies from Sauk County Humane Society, erect the new nest box. And then it took a lot of work on our part at the Humane Society of getting in touch with the finders, the landowners. So the excavator and the landowner kind of worked in partnership 
partnership with us to monitor the nest box and play calls from a callback vocalizations of baby kestrels. They actually also found a fourth one on the property, so they popped that bird back in the nest box as well, and they banded all four of the baby kestrels. And so then it was a waiting game. You know, where are the parents? Was there too much disturbance in the area from the machinery of demolishing this house that they wouldn't come back potentially because they're very sensitive species to that kind of disturbance? So we uh, worked with the landowner and had them try a few things. And after about an hour or so after the Madison Audubon folks left after putting up the new nest box and banding, it was incredible. Uh, the finder was so excited for someone who had never really known what kestrels were or just really didn't pay attention to that on the property than knowing that they nested there. They became really invested and it was so wonderful to see how they monitored that nest box for the next hour or so and the parents came back. They found the nest box. They sat on top of the nest box. They got a picture of it and it was just the coolest story to know that the parents were around but obviously they were so you know disturbed I think by this whole process of you know their nest coming down the babies being gone three of them overnight so it was probably an ordeal for the parents who had been spending you know many many you know weeks sitting on eggs and getting these babies to about the point where they were estimated to be about 20 days old already so really close to fledging and not knowing what would happen to them so uh, lucky for us we were able to get all of the right folks out there all the pieces put together and successfully the parents came back and came back for the chicks multiple times then over and over which was great confirmation for us and just knowing that this does work when you bring people together banders researchers humane society officers rehabilitators put it all together the knowledge the expertise the amazing work that people do in the community to help birds this was probably my favorite story of the year so far so just a huge thanks to everybody that came together for this project and obviously we are a resource in the case that it doesn't work you know sometimes it's trial and error trying to figure out can we do this the best way possible and really the expertise of people and professionals in our community is what made this work. So Madison Audubon, Central Wisconsin Kestrel Research Project, Dane County Humane Society, Sauk County Humane Society, all of the above, just really great folks. So, you know, if you find yourself in this type of situation and you need some help and advice and, you know, trying to figure out how we can collaborate together to help these individuals, give us a call at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center, 608-287-3235. And otherwise we are here for for you, for birds that are sick, injured, or orphaned, and many other species native to Wisconsin. So thanks for listening to this story about American kestrels that got reunited back with their parents in Sauk County. It's a really cool project. We are glad to have you listeners here on WORT. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was my co-host, John K. Wilson. Your reporters were He Won Lim and Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Reed Kamai, and Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, John K. Wilson. Up next is Spanish language news with Inuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>